Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Generally, I'm just trying to create something that has a complexity and flavor, but still offers a drinkability and just kind of a like succinct type of flavor experience. To me, that means that all of those flavor elements are balanced by one another. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining us this week is Avery Swanson, the founder and beer maker of Keeping Together. While the company was founded in 2019, when Avery arrived in Chicago and had an opportunity to begin making her beers at Half Acre, Keeping Together was only recently served at a beer festival for the first time in Washington, D.C. We use this experience as an opportunity to get to know Avery, the construction of Keeping Together's beers, what inspires and drives her, cultural appropriation, and how beer can be a more thoughtful and inclusive space. Let's dive and get heavy. Avery Swanson, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Alexi. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You were just out in DC at the Snallygaster Festival, and you were saying that it's the first Keeping Together festival that you've poured at, and the first time you've appeared with your own beers at a festival. Is that true? Honestly, it was incredible. I uh, So yes, first festival that I've poured at for KT it was a pretty massive festival. Uh, they do like a two hour long VIP session and I'm not sure how many people were there for that. It felt like a lot of people and uh, ran through a fair amount of the beer before the general admission folks, the 6,000 general admission tickets were allowed in. So it was a huge festival. They shut down like all of Pennsylvania Avenue and it's huge. It was an incredible experience for me just because, you know, all of my beer is sold exclusively through Half Acre at the moment. So all of the draft and bottles that I have made for this project are sold there. Um, very, very little distribution has gone out. And because I don't work front of house, I very rarely get to see people taste my beer. Um, so getting to like see people's faces and, and hear what they think about it when they have their first sip. It was a really incredible experience to finally get to have that kind of feedback on the beers. So it was a good time. You mentioned kind of an interesting component to this festival, and that is like you've been working in Half Acres, Lincoln facility as, as, as a production space. You know, we can talk about what that looks like now. Keeping Together started in 2019. There obviously weren't a ton of opportunities for this type of interfacing with people in person. So this was also an audience that was new to your beers because it wasn't in Chicago. People may have known you from Jester King. They may have known you from the internet. What was it like basically putting new beer in front of new faces? I mean, honestly, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, there were plenty of industry folks that came by the booth and wanted to try things. There were a few people that were kind of hanging around, trying everything a few times, which was kind of cool. My sister lives out there and I have sent a little bit of beer out to Ancho. It was kind of a self-interested thing. We're just kind of like, well, my, I have family out there and, and DC is also really easy to ship beer to because it's all, you don't have to go through a distributor there. So that makes things really easy. But yeah, seeing people's faces was, was really fantastic. And it's really interesting because there's so many, you know, Saison's aren't really like the sexy beer style for the most part. There's definitely like a subculture following that style, but Right in the beginning of the festival, I was right next to Jay Wakefield. I mean, it was funny because like Maria, who's their, you know, beer maker and head of everything. Um, she's incredible and a really, really good friend of mine. So 
I was happy to be next to them, but it was funny because, you know, as soon as everybody was led into the festival, everybody ran straight to, they had a line like immediately. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, I expected this, it's fine. <laughs> but a lot of people would come up and they would ask me about my time at Jester King or say like, oh yeah, you were, at, you were the head brewer there for a long time and whatever. So I think there is a bit of, you know, that association, despite the fact that it's been three years since I've been gone, uh, that association is still pretty strong. Um, and people do have like an expectation of what the beers are going to taste like because they are familiar with that brand. How are people's reaction? Because if they are expecting Jester King beers, they're probably expecting spontaneous fermentation, probably expecting fruit heavy beers or barrel heavy beers. So when they taste your beers, what do you kind of read in their faces and how do you interpret that in some way? I mean, I brought several different beers. I think I brought maybe five or six different beers. So, you know, we had everything from the table beer to um, this most recent barrel aged blend that I released, uh, undulant and impermanent, which has maple roasted carrots and spent for net botanicals. So kind of get to see the full, uh, spectrum of emotional experiences when people try the entire lineup. And I think a lot of people were, there were very few people that were like, yeah, you know, it's not my favorite. Most people were very verbally complimentary and they'd kind of walk off with their friends and I'd see their faces and they might kind of, there were a lot of just like exploring their sensory experience, but nodding in a positive way. So um, I don't know, I'm kind of like filling in the blanks there, but even still, I think people, you know, it's hard also in that venue, I guess, to really explain to people like how these beers are made in a succinct and really like direct way. A lot of people are like, oh, so they're spontaneously fermented or, oh, they're wild or, you know, oh, they're sour. And it's like, well, they are mixed fermentation or, you know, mixed culture fermented beers. So there's yeast and bacteria, but they're not all explicitly super sour. Most of them are stainless steel fermented. So they're lightly tart, balanced, dry. They're basically just really easy to drink beers. So it's hard to kind of like Im really impress that upon people when they're standing there in front of you in this like sensory overload experience. If they had an expectation as to what those beers were going to be, they, I think most people were pleasantly surprised. Nothing was super over the top fruity. At, you know, at my booth, but there was plenty of that available at the, at the festival. Do you feel as though the sort of general education of the beer consumer is noticeable in a certain way? Because I think when we talk about sort of the evolution of beer, like generally, often we're actually talking about the evolution as people who are the manufacturers of that beer view it and maybe less so like what the consumer's path is on that. It's almost as though they're kind of being dragged by the collar by the people that make it. The beers that you produce require, I, I think, a little bit of nuance and a little bit of understanding of process to appreciate how those flavors were arrived to. So I guess I'm just kind of curious as to if you feel like you're dragging people along uh, to a certain extent or if the education is there and now maybe people don't need to be walked through things as much? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting too, because, you know, and I've said this before, folks here in Chicago, for the most part, do know their stuff when it comes to beer. I think between Siebel and Cicerone having been here for so long, for the most part, Chicago beer drinkers know what they want, know what they should be getting from like a quality perspective. And I would say that out there, there is a comparable level of like enthusiasm and kind of um, just excitement about the beers in general. Perhaps people aren't as, you know, educated from a technical perspective as to what they're supposed to be drinking or how it should be tasting. But I do think that um, there's kind of this pleasant, unexpected part of people drinking all these really extreme flavored beers and that people are used to kind of wacky flavors. So for me to present them with a beer that has some of those more exotic 
perhaps maybe that's not the right word, but like, you know, a, a pretty broad range of flavors to be experienced, but dialed down a bit so that they're not just like being bludgeoned over the head with the flavor of like mango or something. These beers are definitely more nuanced and what I do generally tell people when they're tasting the beer is like, if you can taste, like, I know that this particular uh, beer has hibiscus, cinnamon, and ginger salt in it. And I know that sounds like a really strange combination of ingredients, but you know, my general philosophy about using adjuncts like this is that if you can taste any one of the ingredients, I'm not really doing my job as well as I wanted to, right? I want to be able to create something that is incredibly well integrated where the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. You know, it sounds like kind of a weird combination of flavors, but when you taste it, all of those things you know, you would have a hard time really picking out any of those things on their own. And people at the festival seem to be pretty, you know, once you kind of lay it out for them in that way, they seem to kind of understand and they're not as freaked out, I guess, about like the ingredients that are on the label. Yeah, I think that not just the beverage movement, but food in general, like has given people a lot of opportunity to learn about if you're talking about incorporation, for example, how are you incorporating all these ingredients into something that's the sum? This is an idea that's been reinforced by other modes of consumption, I guess, in some way. So it's good that things have kind of caught up to where you are in a certain way. Yeah, I'm grateful that people are willing to explore some of these flavors and they have, like you're saying, you know, people have been kind of eating and drinking and exploring this kind of beer and food movement for some time now. And it's nice that they have their own touch points in their memory for some of these different flavor experiences. So you've uh, generously brought some things for us to taste. And speaking of incorporation, you brought two, one being uh, make art, not content. And that's the one I want to talk about right now. The Saison with coffee, sage, peach leaves and honey. And I find it to be a a really, really interesting combination because all of these ingredients have uh, some kind of commonality that comes out really well. And I find specifically like there's a bright character of all of them that comes out to a certain extent, the color and the appearance of it kind of guides that in some way. Where did the idea for this particular, it's really a flavor experience, like where does it come from? This is definitely one of the weirder beers I think I've made with with keeping together at this point to go against what I was just talking about. This is one where one of the ingredients for me is far more salient than some of the other ingredients. The coffee is pretty prominent in it, right? Whereas the sage and the peach leaves kind of lend some like structure and roundness to it. But for the most part, they are like, you know, they are background flavors. Years and years ago, I remember going to Burial. It was my first time in Asheville, stopped at Burial Brewing and they had a coffee saison on. And I was like, oh man, I've never had like a pale beer that has coffee in it. And I will always remember that beer. It was a really fantastic uh, beverage experience. Since then, I have had some other beers that are pale that have coffee in it. And for the most part, they generally have a bit more acidity to them. And I think that the acidity kind of plays off the coffee very well. But for this beer um, here in Chicago, Metric is definitely my go-to coffee roaster for the most part. I really enjoy their coffee. So I got in touch with their R&D guy, their special projects guy over there and started talking to him about some different coffees and kind of this, an idea for this. I don't know. I wanted to use coffee as, as an ingredient. I know that uh, Chicago is definitely more of a stout city than it is a Saison city and coffee is a pretty common ingredient in Imperial stouts or stouts or whatever. So it's like, okay, well let's, let's see if we can't create a stainless steel fermented pale saison that utilizes some nice coffee. So this is a single origin Ethiopian coffee bean from a collective in Ethiopia called Getabor and uh, roasted here in Chicago at Metric. And it's a really beautiful coffee. And then when I was making this, it was around, I think maybe early June and uh, 
just coming into peach season or mid June. And one of the the chefs up at, at Half Acre mentioned to me that she used peach leaves for a lot of things and that it might be an interesting ingredient. And we'd use peach leaves down at, at Jester King too, but it's an interesting ingredient in that when you boil it, it really, it doesn't taste like peaches. It has a very like bitter almond kind of flavor to it, which I thought would be cool with this. You know, people use almond milk in their coffee or, or oat milk or whatever. So it was like, okay, that might be an interesting complimentary thing to add. And then sage for me is like an awesome and very like savory herb. And so I I liked the idea of kind of throwing that in here to touch on a little bit of like an umami type of experience or a savory experience, but also kind of a green flavor. Um, So it kind of like plays off of some of the greener notes in the coffee, excuse me, balances some of the, that like bitter almond type character as well. Generally, I'm just trying to create something that has like a complexity and flavor, but still offers a drinkability and just kind of a like succinct type of flavor experience. When to me, that means that all of those flavor elements are balanced by one another. It's interesting that you kind of mentioned that you're looking at how people may experience some of these ingredients together and then rounding it out. Are the adjunct choices all made before like the beer is made? Because whether we're talking to a Lambic producer or to scratch, there's like so many different ways that these variables can kind of go. If things go in a certain direction, is it a matter of like shifting the ingredient choice? Like which, I guess, how do you choose which levers you're going to kind of pull the beer into? I originally wanted to do this with basil instead of sage. So I had kind of a, just a general, like, okay, this is a flavor thing that I want to try out. Cause I think that basically doing coffee with green herbs is a really interesting flavor experience. So I originally wanted to do basil. I ended up doing a few different bench experiments after I had already infused the coffee and the coffee was more intense than I originally expected it would be. I ended up using a fair amount of whole bean as opposed to like crushed beans. And so I wasn't expecting it to be as potent as it was. So after I did the coffee infusion, it was kind of like, oh, okay, this is a little bit more intense than I originally thought it was going to be. I don't think that the basil is really going to carry through this the way I wanted it to. But in doing some bench experiments with it, I was like, okay, the sage actually comes through really nicely and does offer this like more angular kind of like bright green type flavor, which I really liked. The peach leaves were there. I had already bought them and I was like, you know, they weren't super expensive, thankfully. Um, I think the farm I got them from was like, why do you want these? (laughs) Um, So they gave me a pretty good deal on it. And I, I froze them until I was ready to use them. And I basically just made like a tea at the end of like right before packaging and use that as like a a simple syrup for the priming or a conditioning syrup. So I kind of took a chance on the peach leaves because that one was a bit harder to do a bench bench trial on. Uh, But I like how it it turned out. I thought that it was really nice. The reaction of the farmer or the person you're buying from and when you come to them saying you want this thing and you may not even tell them what you're using it for because that may be like a whole nother layer of woe. But Is that a reaction you get commonly from people when you're buying ingredients like peach leaves? Because I mean, I think that there are some ingredients that are not super commonly used in beverage that you're using in your beers. I don't get it as much here just because I'm not making as much beer, but I I would definitely get that kind of response from farmers and such down in, in Texas. There was this one woman who was farming a little bit outside of Austin and she had this beautiful garden and I went down there and kind of just like walked through things with her, all the different things that she was growing. She had a few herbs there like that I ended up buying from her. One was called Popolo. It's kind of like a tropical cilantro almost really interesting herb. I don't think I would even really be able to give you like a full flavor description of it right now. But um, I asked her what she used it for. And she was like, 
honestly, just kind of like whatever. Sometimes I might throw it into some salsa or, you know, whatever. But she was like, it's it's an interesting herb and not many people know what it is. So most people don't buy it. She's like, I just kind of use it here because I, I personally like it and I grew up with it in my childhood. I was like, oh. Um, so I ended up buying a fair amount of that from her. And she was like, you're going to put this into a beer? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like this is all that wild, you know, but I do think that a lot of people, especially people just like reading the labels are kind of like, why would you use some of these ingredients? It's definitely a weird, um, a weird approach. Not everybody uses such kind of esoteric or strange or uh, I don't know, like unheard of type ingredients or combinations thereof. So I kind of enjoy when people look at me like I'm insane for the ingredients that I'm planning on using for a thing. Um, it makes it that much more kind of gratifying when it turns out to be palatable. <laughs> When you're producing at scale, and I don't know exactly if the half acre facility you were producing at, how that resembles what you were brewing at in in Jester King, but these aren't necessarily like homebrew setups. These are definitely professional kits with varying levels of automation and manual where they need to. Do you sort of think of risk in any way when you're using these ingredients and if something goes south or goes like unexpectedly awesome? Yeah. I mean, the way that I process things, definitely. I will say that the facility that I'm at currently, Half Acres Lincoln facility, I'm almost done there. Actually, I've got one more beer to package and then my production there will be over. But it's very similar to JK and that is fairly manual brew house, which I really enjoy. And as far as like processing fruit and herbs and other kinds of weird adjunct ingredients, you know, they had like a, a convection oven, which was really great. We never had one of those at JK while I was there. So that has made things a lot easier because I'm not like toasting things in like a tiny tray. <laughs> but since it is just me, no matter what it is that I'm doing will take a fairly long time. So like processing peaches for the grace of maybe that I did last year, that took like eight hours or chopping rhubarb, take another, like that's a full day's work um, when it's just one person even if it's not a like super huge amount to start with. It's all pretty straightforward. I definitely in thinking about, you know, the next chapter and building out a facility of my own, like how much money can I allocate to like food processing? <laughs> because that is going to mean the difference between like, I don't know, using all these really cool ingredients in larger batches or larger scale and uh and just not be being miserable while doing it. Um processing fruit is not it's not the most fun. <laughs> You're in the process uh, as of this recording of kind of figuring out what the next step is and where that's going to be. This sort of conundrum that you were talking about of like this catalog of learned experiences of things that that you've learned by having a convection oven or not having a convection oven or having this particular farm nearby that you can get these ingredients from. Obviously, like things happen by happenstance and you may not know everything that you're going to be doing in three years. But what are the things that you've picked up so far that you like know you want to have in the next place or that are sort of cementing themselves as things that are crucial to keeping together? I would say that most of the like the direction that I am currently going in uh, with this next chapter, you know, I'm still very much kind of in the process of <laughs> acquiring funding and getting everything kind of settled for all of that. So, of course, I have like a list of all of the equipment that I want. And a lot of that is, I don't know, it's all pretty standard, right? Like you want to build a brewery, you have a list of all the things that you basically need. And then given my desire to make, to continue to make beers that just have like interesting ingredients in them, um, definitely have some weird pieces of equipment on there that most breweries probably don't have you know, like a really massive food processor. <laughs> but beyond that, my, 
you know, my experience in this industry and even prior to getting in the beer industry, working in hospitality for a long time, all of this is definitely informing kind of the direction that I want to go. You know, I don't want to build a brewery and make a shitload of beer. I like the idea of making something that is just a manageable volume for myself and a team of people. I probably would never be making more than five or 6,000 barrels a year. I want to be able to create something that is a very, you know, that is hospitality driven and focused, obviously a brewery, uh, but definitely have like a restaurant on site, definitely, you know, a garden so that I can grow uh, all of the ingredients that I want to use, or at least as many of them as I possibly can. I'll say too, just like being here in Chicago over the last, I've been here for almost three years now and almost, I guess a little bit more than half of that at this point has been during a global pandemic. You know, I love Chicago. I I know there's been like rumblings on Beer Advocate about somebody showed me a thread that was just like, what do you mean? She, she Did she not know it was going to be cold? <laughs> like she's leaving because it's too cold. I'm like, no, I fucking, of course I knew it was going to be cold. <laughs> um, it's not so much the cold. It's that it's gray all the time, you know? And it's that I, it takes me an hour to get out of the city before I can find like trees that I can walk around in for a few hours. Like, you know, I miss being outside. When I was at Jester King, I was outside every day. And so I miss that. I want to be able to have a larger piece of property that I can kind of roam around on and So that definitely is informing some of the decisions that I'm making about where I want to create this more permanent outpost. I suppose you're also maybe looking for some type of new sensory experience to come with that place to complete the trinity of sensory experiences in some way of your of your life. And so at this point, like, what do you sort of imagine those things to be? Born and raised in Texas, I prefer kind of that latitude, I guess. I was born and raised in Houston and then lived in Austin. So that more Southern latitude and the weather that comes with it, I do enjoy the heat. Obviously, I know that things are heating up just about everywhere. I really like that kind of hill country type climate and topography and flora and fauna. I think that is very much, I would like to get back to that. So I'm currently looking nearby. I don't necessarily want to move back to Texas. It's been going through some things recently. I'm fine with not moving back to where I've already lived also. I'm looking at New Mexico currently. I was originally looking at Arizona, but I think the climate there is a little bit more fire prone than than New Mexico is. And the beer laws in New Mexico are a bit more friendly. So that's kind of where I'm where I'm looking currently. And so it does have this So like Santa Fe, for instance, there's a pretty strong food and beverage scene. I don't want to necessarily be like in the city, but, you know, a short drive away. They've got a pretty robust food and beverage scene. People there are excited about what's going on there farm to table wise. So that is compelling to me. There's a lot about that particular area that is familiar. It's similar to Texas in a lot of ways, but Santa Fe is at like almost 7,000 feet elevation. So it's also got a lot about it that is different than what I'm used to. The weather is nice and temperate. You know, it's not like 95 degrees in the summer every day. And that appeals to me. I don't know if that totally answers your question, but it is kind of like, let's find something that is familiar, that has elements of things that I know that I want in my life, not necessarily in my business, but in my life to be a happy and like healthy person. And then beyond that, outside of the comfort zone a little bit and somewhere I've never been, that's, you know, got different flora and fauna and different people and, you know, offers some opportunities for growth. When did you sort of arrive at the idea that this mixed fermentation, these types of beers, this family of beers that are honed in, but also up for whatever in a certain way, when did it come to you that this was more of what you wanted to kind of get into rather than beers that are like completely 
controlled. It feels like it's always been that way. I guess when I was a home brewer, I did a lot of like IPA brewing and, you know, I brewed brown ales and stuff like that. And I do very much, I, I consider myself to be a hop head at heart. I do really love hoppy beers. And I think that the range of flavors that one can achieve or explore through IPA and uh, through like hops or whatever, that is exciting to me. I like that there is so much that one can do and play around with there. But I do also really just like philosophically enjoy the idea of making beer that's a bit more collaborative and a little bit less predictable. I can't remember who would have given me this this metaphor originally, but I do kind of think of mixed fermentation beer as being kind of like jazz, where even if you wanted to play it the same way twice, you probably shouldn't or don't have to or can't in some cases. So I really like that philosophically where it's like, you know, every time I brew this beer, it's slightly different and I can make tweaks. And I think in the mixed firm world, there's a little bit more flexibility for that approach. Whereas in the clean beer world, it's like, oh, if your Pilsner doesn't taste the exact same every single time, that becomes an issue. Or if you want it to kind of evolve over a period of, you know, let's say that you're not really all that stoked on like the hops that you're using, or maybe lots from year to year end up being significantly different and the end product ends up tasting different you know, you still have to figure out how to make that beer taste the way that you want it to taste, but you have to do so slowly over time or subtly so that people aren't like jarred when they taste it and it's not, it doesn't taste like their, their favorite beer anymore. Um, so I think that in the mixed firm world, there's a little bit more flexibility for that, which I appreciate. And then from just like an ingredient perspective, brewing a Pilsner, most people aren't going to be okay with you putting like peach leaves in it or some other coffee or whatever, some other weird ingredient like that. To me, I think a lot of consumers are are not as open to, well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe people are really open to it. Uh, but to me, it seems like if you're trying to make something that's historically, stylistically correct and, um, you know, like wanting to honor the ingredients and the tradition and whatever, all of that stuff, you wouldn't be putting weird ingredients in it. Like very much respect people that make clean beers, like God bless them, <laughs> because I drink a ton of those myself. But Maybe one day I will play around with some of that. But for now and for the last several years, I've just really like this particular style or approach to beer making hasn't gotten old to me. Like I'm not bored with it yet. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Avery Swanson from Keeping Together in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. And be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Avery Swanson. I'd say probably Sante Darius also puts out some really beautiful beer, and their saisons are no exception. I think about like Saint Somewhere, <laughs> Bob Sylvester. His beers are are amazing, and you know. So when I think of like old school American saison, I think about him, and and of course like Ron Jeffries with Jolly Pumpkin Bam Beer, which. I guess technically isn't a Saison, but it's farmhouse ale and that very much hits, it scratches that Saison itch for me. There are a ton of really fantastic Saisons out there. I think one of the things that's really fun about that style is that it's really 
very broad and open to a certain amount of interpretation. I like enjoying beverages like that because I think that it allows for a certain amount of use of ingredients and inclusion in a certain way. Like their people can approach it from so many different perspectives, whether it's the example of like resource driven or it can be something that's highly refined and super intentional and is simple to be reproduced in a very similar way every time. It's a, a pretty open style. And so I think like, is this sort of one of the ways that you think that this is a contribution to making beer sort of like a more open and inclusive space is style like a part of that reach. I do think that having the flexibility to use ingredients from like lots of different places across the planet and that are culturally significant to lots of different people, I think is a really incredible thing. I recently made a beer with, uh, I think I already kind of touched on these ingredients earlier, but it was like hibiscus, cinnamon, and ginger salt. And the original kind of impetus or memory that I was drawing from for that combination of ingredients was a trip that I took to Belize in like 2014, maybe. A friend of mine went down there and had a ton of sorrel wine down there. It was one of the most incredible drinking experiences that I can remember. And I really wanted to try to incorporate some of those, you know, sorrel is like hibiscus down there. So it's like, okay, well, I want that to kind of be the base for this, this idea. Um, and then in doing a bit more research about sorrel wine across the Caribbean, it's like in different places, they use different ingredients. I want to say it was like Jamaica. They used a fair amount of like cinnamon in their sorrel wine. I was like, that sounds fucking awesome. Um, so let's see if we can't play around with that a little bit. And then in in making it, I was like, okay, this tastes great, but I feel like it's it's missing like a, like a high note kind of ingredient addition. Um, and the ginger salt for me, the ginger gave it a little bit of like brightness and you can't really taste the salinity in it. It kind of just gives it a little bit more roundness. I cite this example as one that's like, you know, you can very much take these ingredients from across the planet. And although I am obviously not from the Caribbean, I just have like so much reverence and like excitement about the flavors um, that I experienced while I've traveled down there. You know, you kind of like ride that line of like, you know, I'm not trying to be appropriating by any means by using some of those ingredients, but in trying to kind of recreate my experience with those flavors while I was there and including those in this beer in order to try to achieve that like you were saying, like for this style to be so open-ended and kind of just like tabula rasa, blank slate, like there's a lot that one can do and it doesn't have to be like a very narrow reality tunnel of different types of ingredients that you can include in it. That's interesting that you bring up appropriation because I had actually never really thought of beer as in that world when cultural appropriation and the Venn diagram of it overlaps with food more often than not. And I think there may be some localization to that as well, because that's been a pretty prominent topic about the culinary world here in Chicago. I haven't really thought of it in relation to beer. So to open this up a little bit, do you think that beer generally engages in appropriation? And within this, where do you sort of as a manufacturer see a line or is there a line? It is definitely an important conversation to be had, you know, in thinking about like, does this exist in any really large way in the beer world? My thinking is that it it's not like overt Maybe because I kind of feel like one could make the argument that like if you live in an area where hops don't grow, but you use hops, like perhaps that's not culturally appropriating, but it is, you know, this is not something that grows nearby you and and whatever. So in this in the world of kind of like, okay, localism is king and you need to be using local ingredients. 
even if they are subpar or even if the quality isn't there. I don't know. I think that everybody has to kind of like make up their own mind about their values and what's important. And I think that you can find balance there. So from like a, an idea perspective or a recipe development perspective, are you creating a beer with flavors that are very much from a different culture? If so, are you taking into consideration the fact that those flavors come from a different or are used primarily in a different culture? If so, you know, you need to figure out how you can honor that tradition in a way that's not appropriating as if it's like, yeah, I came up with this flavor combination on my own. Because uh, some of the industry would argue that could very well be cited as an innovation. But if there is precedent, it's not innovation. Of course. (laughs) You know, that's some of like the fallacy that I'm trying to point out a little bit. And I think, too, that people are, you know, everybody wants to be using local ingredients. And I think that's great if you if you have local ingredients. I love that. It's like the the meditation bowls. Yeah, I'm here for that. (laughs) You know, like if you don't have like in Texas, you know, I always struggled with making atrial rubicite or any of the the berry beers because, you know, mulberries grew around, but not in any great quantity. Like we were buying those berries from faraway places. And I say I struggle with it. I just don't really like raspberries. So that was primarily my struggle. (laughs) But, you know, like we're buying drums of IQF, individually quick frozen raspberry crumbles in order to make that beer. And that's no secret. We told plenty of people that's how we made that beer. But raspberries just straight up don't grow in Texas. There might be some small places down along the border, like high elevation that might be doing it. But you know, for the most part, that's just not an ingredient that grows nearby. On one hand, we probably shouldn't be making that beer at all. But then on the other hand, like goods have been traded across the planet since the beginning of civilization, since the beginning of when we figured out we could go other places as humans, like people have been trading since the beginning. So I don't think that it is a bad thing to be trading ingredients or sourcing ingredients from faraway places. Um, You know, as long as you're doing your due diligence and figuring out what's high quality and what's, yeah, I mean, quality is incredibly important. You know, and then there's also the topic of like carbon emissions and are you are you doing a lot of harm to the planet by getting things from faraway places and, and all that stuff. So I think as beer makers, you really just have to figure out like what your values are, what you're willing to compromise on and then kind of hold yourself accountable to those things. That's an interesting perspective that beer is one of these goods that has really sort of been globalized and that it's hard to necessarily point where the origin of something can be because a lot of styles are the product of someone did this thing here this one time, it became this thing, and then somewhere else, the Mexican lager would be like a great example of that. And I think most other beer styles have some example of the evolution. And I think food is the same way. And that's one of the issues that I personally have with the appropriation because it attempts to make something objective when it's actually like pretty subjective in some ways when people are being nice. Yeah. And I remember even, you know, growing up in Houston, which was just, I couldn't think of a better food city, you know, Um, even still like Houston is an incredible food city and people, you know, people talk a lot of shit about Houston and some of that is, is founded and some of it is people just talking trash but like the food scene down there is incredible. You know, I remember as a kid, I would skip school and we'd go down to like Bel Air where all of the like Asian restaurants were. And like, we would eat so much incredible like Chinese food and Korean food and Vietnamese food. You know, I, I just, I miss that. And then moving to Austin where if I wanted Vietnamese food, it was going to be in the form of like a fusion taco, you know, like there was no true banh mi to be found with any sort of respect for like actual tradition or where that came from. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, 
do you take these things that inspired you that you have all these memories for as a younger person and as a maker, you try to incorporate them into the thing that you're making. And, you know, I think if you're doing that without really honoring where it all came from, I think that that's kind of, therein lies an issue for me. But I think if you can like tell the story and honor where it comes from and, and honor the fact that like, no, I did not come up with it. Like being honest about what you're doing and what you're making and whatever, I think is really important. I think that there are a lot of really incredible flavors out there and I'm very open to trying new things and, you know, traveling to new places to try new things and all of that. And, you know, there are some experiences that just, I, I wouldn't have never had here in the States that I've had in other countries, like from a flavor perspective that I would love to try to not even recreate, but just like interpret in my own through the medium that I have chosen. Do you think that the emphasis on off-flavor diagnosis, I suppose, is sort of an issue in the delivery of flavor experience? I think that, yes, to an extent. I think that off-flavor already implies a like judgment, whereas you can taste things without judgment. I like the term sensory and I like the term, well, yeah, I like the term sensory. Like you can, you can discuss the presence of a compound without judging whether or not it is an off flavor. Because in some places that flavor might not be off or in some styles, it's totally appropriate for it to be there. For me, the presence or absence of certain compounds allow the drinker the opportunity to kind of diagnose what has gone on in the making of a, of a beer or for that matter, any, any other substance, right? Whether it be like a coffee or a wine or olive oil or whatever. If you have a trained palate and you taste certain things that indicate, well, this particular product got oxidized at some point in its process. You know, these are all things that just inform the taster as to that product's journey to your mouth. So I think that not associating a judgment with it is a positive thing. And then when it comes to teaching people about sensory, you don't need to tell them that this is an off flavor. Like this, the presence of sulfur in this beer just means that it's fresh or whatever, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's like sulfur. So it's an off flavor just means that it's it's a fresh beer. Doesn't always mean that, but sometimes it does. So there's an issue as a reiterative thing. So what you're arguing to a certain extent is that there's an issue with nomenclature to a certain extent that we've diagnosed the certain things as off, off being our way in this language of associating as bad and no. And so therefore that closes our mind to certain experiences or understanding that can be looked at more objectively. Yeah, that's a much better <laughs> succinct way of saying it. <laughs> Another thing of being out at this festival and being in front of people was getting to hear a little bit about what's on people's minds and maybe seeing, does that match what I'm seeing on the internet? How does this sort of confirm or deny or go with what I feel personally? I'm interested in hearing about what you're hearing in terms of the perspectives on the overlaps in social justice and what's happening in the beer community. What was your sort of takeaway from the experience of the festival? It has been very interesting to kind of be reimmersed in the beer world after so long being quarantined or locked up in here in Chicago. There's a lot going on in, in the beer world. I feel like, you know, a few years back, whenever brewers would get together and chat about stuff, there was always talk about, you know, process and what people are doing, what they're excited about and stuff like that. And I feel like over the last couple of years with the pandemic and everything, there hasn't been a ton in the way of like flavor innovation or process innovation. Uh, you know, people, some people pivoted to making some seltzers, I don't know how prevalent that is overall, to be totally honest, but I do feel like with the kind of threat, existential threat that the pandemic posed to our industry and to individual businesses, people kind of hunkered down and just like did what they knew they were good at, did what they knew they could sell 
And I think that that's, that makes total sense to me. So re-emerging into the beer space and, and chatting with people, there was a little bit of talk of that type of thing. But, you know, for the most part, people are kind of talking about like just the longevity of their businesses and like what's going on in the beer world generally. And, you know, since May, when there was kind of a lot of talk about sexism and misogyny in the industry, there's been a fair amount of conversation about that over the last like six months. And this festival was October 9th which seemed like it kind of came in between a couple of other festivals that were happening where some people were, you know, pouring that had been called out in, in the original, you know, back in May for having less than stellar business practices or treating people unfairly or whatever. So there was a fair amount of conversation about all of that, which was interesting to engage in. As a woman in the industry, I have experienced my fair share of all of the things, you know, everything from microaggressive comments to sexual assault from people that I worked with or worked in the same industry with, or even people that were just peripheral to the industry or outside of the industry. So it's all heavy stuff. I haven't formulated a really like coherent position on it because I think that there's many opinions and many thoughts and many potential solutions. But I would say that that was definitely a, a hot topic around the industry folks over the last, or while I was there last week. Was this something that you also saw sort of consumers were engaging with? Was it something that wasn't just something that was talked about behind the keg dispensing, but that was something that was happening among the consumers too? To be honest, I didn't really experience that. I didn't find too many consumers that were, if they were aware, they weren't, you know, starting that conversation. I mean, every time I've ever been to a festival, there have been women that have approached me and, you know, struck up conversation or even I've, I've approached other women, um, not necessarily people in the industry, but just, you know, consumers and chatted about what it's like to be a woman in the industry or a lot of these women are home brewers or whatever, or we all have our own stories about how we've been treated in this industry or, or whatever. So, or while engaging with the industry. So those conversations I think have been happening for a long time, but I wouldn't say that there was any like a really strong number of folks that approached me at this particular festival that were interested in talking about it. It was primarily kind of industry back and forth about it. I think it's definitely something that this industry and these small business owners are all trying to navigate. And it's it's really hard when it's a tough social issue and when there's not until recently, maybe even like a lot of great resources that are geared towards small businesses. The very small companies that are just one person or two people, it's obviously like a little easier to do that. But as soon as you kind of start scaling up, and when you have to scale up really quickly, because that's how we choose to engage in commerce in this country more often than not, it seems it's a little harder to kind of stamp things out in a certain way because people are typically distracted by looking at the thing that they're doing and less so sort of the other things that occur around it. It's challenging in a lot of ways. And so I think even for people that are owners of businesses and may not obviously condone all the activities that occur, sometimes it's hard to sort of see these things and internalize them in a way as like, this is you know a reflection of my company. This isn't something I would do. And now I have to sort of deal with the consequences of something someone else chose to do altogether. And it was in my space that's challenging. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I do have opinions about a lot of it. You know, part of what I want to do with my business is to try to, and you know, this is typed out on my website, like, you know, this is an attempt at creating or increasing the collective empathy of the world, right? 
thoughtful beers for an ecstatic reality. And I do believe that as business owners, as people in this industry in positions of, you know, power influence, like it is our responsibility to show leadership and create spaces that are safe for each other and for other people in the industry. But it is a highly nuanced topic. It's super hard to navigate. I think a lot of breweries out there are watching what's going on and there's definitely a fair amount of fear. I like that for me was palpable um, at this last festival and just in chatting with people before and after, you know, nobody kind of knows what's going to happen with all of this. And I think that we are in a position as an industry to affect some really positive change. And it's very, very challenging to change a collective. It's very hard to change an entire group of people. I think change needs to be happening on a like person to person basis. And I think that, you know, the way that we are going to make allies with this movement is by creating more curious people, people who are entering or engaging with this movement from a place of genuine curiosity and uh, respect. I do think that we will get there at some point. I think that there's just so much kind of, there seems to just be a lot of fear right now. And it's it's not just fear of being uh, you know called out or fear of being canceled. It's a fear of not knowing exactly what to do in order to do better. I think that this is a this is a process that has been in the works for a very long time. There have been women in this industry that have put up with a lot of crazy shit and that have worked really hard to get to the positions that they're in and have tried to create safe spaces for other women who will be following them. And there has been a fair amount of progress made over the last few years. I've, I've seen it and been a part of it myself. There is still a ton of work to be done, 100%. But I think for me, my personal thoughts on it is like, I, I, I want to be able to create like, actual change in people one-on-one and that generally requires a vulnerable conversation definitely had a few of those at this festival and i do think that we're getting there it's just going to be it's going to take a little while yeah and i think that maybe social media is a very hard place to have that conversation because the things that social media values is succinctness and an ability to catch a lot of eyes and this is a an evolving conversation that has a lot of nuance and it's pretty much the antithesis of what should be discussed on social media. Yeah, social media doesn't it's not built for that. You know, we're all addicted to it or so many people are. And so it's hard to pull your eyes away from the social media to a different medium where there might be a bit more deep conversation happening. I do think that the more of these like in-person forums we can have and discussions and things like that, the more of those we can plan and, and execute, I think the better, because there just needs to be people from all walks of life contributing to the conversation. I mentioned earlier that like I have experienced my fair share of, of all of the things that were kind of listed out on that original sharing of stories reading all of those things was triggering for me. Like it is a hard thing to relive and a hard thing to go back and experience in your memory. And it's just, it's not everybody wants to kind of get in the spotlight and share those stories in the way that has been going on so far. And I know that other people are doing it their own ways. And I think that that's incredibly important, but those people don't seem to be getting as much of the attention or as much of the airtime. I had several people come to me and, and say that, you know, they had stories that they considered sharing, but that were, they were really uncomfortable doing so. And, you know, there are people out there that feel that way. And I want to hold space for those people too. Like I said, it's a hard topic and it's a hard conversation to have. And, you know, I do think that a lot of business owners want to do the right thing, but 
there is no one right thing. There are many things and it's, it's a practice, you know, and I think that it requires a fair amount of self-awareness and empathy and self-curiosity. And, you know, if we are not trying to cultivate those attributes in people in this industry, we're not going to get very far with any of these movements. Thank you for sharing that. Let's look at what the outlay is for you for the foreseeable future. You're looking at a space in the Southwest potentially, and what's sort of the last beer that you've got coming out of Half Acre? I guess I can go ahead and just say that we're looking outside of Santa Fe, um, New Mexico. I'm very excited about that. And I will, I'll probably be here for another probably three to six months, to be totally honest. Building a brewery is a slow process and uh, I still have a fair amount of beer here. That's, you know, I want to say I've got five or six more, five, five more releases. So um, more beers coming down the pipeline, probably will be releasing the last beer either towards the end of December or maybe into January. I'm very excited about, about all of that. I don't want to leave my I don't know. These beers are like my children, you know, at this point. And like, I don't want to just like abandon ship and take off. And I want to be able to support the folks at Half Acre who are being such incredible stewards of this thing that I've been working so hard on. So we'll be here for another probably three to six months. And then from there, move on to start building this, this new thing. Well, you've been an incredible force in the short amount of time that you've been here in Chicago, and you've been a welcomed addition to the fabric of what's been going on in this, In this, I would say, like a pretty good beer city. It's hard to make that impact in the short amount of time that you've been able to, but I think it speaks a lot to your abilities and your imaginativeness. And I think that wherever you end up next, be it Santa Fe or wherever, we look forward to them benefiting from that as well there. Thanks, Alexi. I appreciate you saying that. It's uh, It has been an honor to make beer here in Chicago. I have learned a ton and I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity and for all the people that have been so supportive. Well, we'll look forward to hopefully uh, seeing some of that beer in Chicago in the future. Yeah. I mean, I look forward to sending it back up this way. Cool. So. Just put my address on the okay. on the pallet and we'll get it here. <laughs> Maybe I'll share some with Beer Temple. We'll see. <laughs> I think oh. Chris might fight you for some of it. So uh, I'm bigger. I can take them. <laughs> Avery, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. It was, it was great. <laughs> 